TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Janis Varoufakis, Capitalism has become techno-feudalism. The former Greek finance minister in conversation with Dr. Mark Lamont Hill on Al Jazeera, February 2021. We no longer live under capitalism. Capitalism has morphed into what I call a techno-feudalism, in the sense that, you know, you don't have a competitive capitalist economy. You've got some very few, very few platform companies that effectively own the market. They don't monopolize it, like Amazon, for instance. Once you are into Amazon or Facebook, you're not in capitalism. You are in a kind of Soviet regime owned by one man. That's Yanis Varoufakis on techno-feudalism, a term that's in the news these days. It may mean control of the data by the few fang companies. That's Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Alphabet, formerly known as Google. Techno-feudalism also applies to the dominance of finance and banking over state institutions driving huge wealth inequalities with socialism for the rich and austerity for the West. Yanis Varoufakis is the former finance minister of Greece and professor of economics at the University of Athens. He's co-founder of the Democracy in Europe movement, DM25. They see the European Union becoming a technocratic superstate and aim to create more democracy. Varoufakis is being interviewed by Dr. Mark Lamont-Hill. He's professor of Media, Cities and Solutions at Temple University and an award-winning journalist and author. He's host of Upfront on Al Jazeera. Why are billionaires making trillions of dollars in the middle of a pandemic? I'll ask economist and former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for joining us on Upfront. It's a pleasure. Recently, uh, an Oxfam study found that since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, the world's 10 richest men have seen their wealth increase by a combined half a trillion dollars. That's more than enough money to cover the cost of vaccination for everybody on the planet. Who should be held responsible for this kind of gross inequality and injustice? The crash of 2008, our generation's 1929. Nothing is, has been the same since then. Come to think of it, immediately after 2008, uh, the great and the good, the central banks primarily, and of course governments, got together at the G20 level, if you recall, April 2009, and they started refloating the financial markets by means of state money, printed by central banks primarily. For 12 years, even before COVID-19 hit, we have been creating this kind of boisterous financial market environment uh, with stagnation for the real economy, for real capitalism, for you know, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, with some large businesses. And then COVID-19 comes and hits us. We do a lot more of that QE stuff, money printing. The financial markets now have uh, exited the stratosphere, whereas um, the rest of the economy is tanking. The result is, the top 0.01% are doing very well, thank you. And the rest of the global society is suffering. You talk about 2008. I want to push on that a little bit more because in 2008, you're right, we printed more money. Uh, we gave it back to corporations who bought back their shares and they didn't invest. 
This was the fix in 2008, and it seems to be our same strategy here during the pandemic. Is it that we've learned nothing, or is oligarchy just indomitable? What, what's the answer for this replication of the process? It seems that those uh, in uh, positions of power, of authority, uh, are like the Bourbons. They forget nothing and they learn nothing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, why is business not investing? It's not that they don't want to invest. It's not some conspiracy. They look around and they look at the little people who are being subjected to stringent austerity, whether they are in Greece, not just in Greece and Puerto Rico, but even in Germany, in France, in the United States of America, the vast majority of people have been treated to austerity, cutbacks. Um, even the Obama stimulus never went to the little people. It ran out of path very quickly. States were cutting. So we had 12 years of austerity for the many and socialism for the financiers. The result is companies look around and see people who do not have the capacity to buy new expensive stuff. So they don't invest in it. They take the money that the state prints, and as you correctly put it, they go to the stock exchange and buy back their own shares. This is wasted energy. It boosts inequality and creates stagnation for the many. You talk about the stock exchange and also the U.S. economy. Right now, the U.S. economy is in shambles. Uh, last year, it shrank by three and a half that's the worst we've seen since the end of World War II. Uh, unemployment's higher than it was during the 2008 financial crisis. And yet Wall Street, they did pretty well in 2020. And it's not just the U.S. If we look uh, in the U.K., we see a very similar thing. We see uh, the London Stock Exchange jump 2 percent on the very same day that the news broke that the economy was shrinking. There seems to be a huge gap between uh, what the markets are saying and what reality is saying. Why? Because we no longer live under capitalism. Capitalism has morphed into what I call a techno-feudalism, in the sense that, you know, you don't have a competitive capitalist economy with boisterous competition. You've got some very few, very few platform companies that effectively own the market. They don't monopolize it, just they own it, like Amazon, for instance. Once you are into Amazon or Facebook, you're not in capitalism. You are in a kind of Soviet regime owned by one man, really. Uh, and the rest of the the market economy is shrinking, it is in stagnation. Money is being pumped by central banks, struggling to keep the whole thing, the whole show on the road. The money ends up with the large corporations that already have savings that they're not investing because of the little people's impecunity. So they go to the stock exchange and buy back their own shares. So you have the London Stock Exchange, the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, the Paris Stock Exchange, you know, uh, and of course New York doing remarkably well at a time when the vast majority are suffering. You, you mentioned this idea that we're no longer in capitalism. And, and I, I read something, uh, a speech of yours at the launch of the Project for Peace and Justice uh, of January of this year. You said capitalism has already morphed into something even worse. As you said, I call it techno-feudalism. We don't even have capitalism. The Amazons of the world, the Facebooks of the world, powered by public money, by the Bank of England, European Central Bank, the Fed, they are combining the worst of the state with the worst of private monopolies. If these companies have monopolies and they're being propped up by the state, if tech companies are, are the ones with all the power, and they're not accountable to any electorate, what do we do? What's the solution? We get organized. It's the way we got out of, you know, authoritarian regimes in previous centuries. It's the way that we impose democracy upon ruling classes. Remember, ruling classes never wanted democracy. Even the liberals of the 19th century. And that is something that those who are criticizing China today must remember. British liberalism 
you know, that went hand in hand with capitalism, uh, was anti-democratic. We are condemned to fight the same struggle again and again for democracy. The idea of everyday people pushing back against these corporate oligarchies, pushing back against corporate power, fighting the markets, uh, is something that we're watching in real time in a certain kind of way. In late January, we saw uh, the Reddit rebellion, right, where social media users took on Wall Street hedge funds by turning the game on them. They drove up stock prices and not only made cash for themselves, but they also sabotaged short selling, in which, you know, where Wall Street uh, investors bet against struggling companies like a GameStop, which is obviously the, the, the target. In response, of course, we saw the trading app uh, Robinhood suspend trading for specific securities, inviting a, a kind of bipartisan outrage. Uh, is this kind of resistance the new type of resistance that might actually generate change? Is this what we need to do? Is it even possible to sustain that? Well, it's a mixed picture. Uh, it is not a revolution. It's not Occupy Wall Street through financial means. I wish it were. Uh, six months ago, I published a, a, a political science fiction novel called Another Now. Um, you, you will excuse me for plugging it. <laughs> but in it, I described the kind of revolution uh, that would involve financial engineering. An element of that we saw in GameStop, an element of that, but it was not a rebellion. The interesting aspect of the GameStop episode is that indeed, as you mentioned, you had 4.4 million people getting together to make money, right? It's not, it was not purely ideological, of course. It was to make money. But a substantial proportion of these millions of people didn't care about so much making money. They didn't even mind losing the money they put in it. They wanted to sock it to the hedge funds. So there is an element of ideology there. There is an element of collective action through financial um, circuits. Giannis, then what's missing if there's a kind of anti-capitalist, maybe not anti-capitalist, but certainly anti-corporate uh, impulse there? It's organized action. Uh, what makes that, in your estimation, distinct than Occupy, which you call a movement, and this seems like more just a, a singular tactic? What, what would make it a full-fledged movement, and is this replicable? Well, two th things are missing. The first is uh, a manifesto, a, a vision. What do we want to put in place of these financial markets that are broken? They are not working for humanity. They're, they're working for the finances. Yeah? What would m markets look like? if you removed this uh, virus of financialization from it. And the second thing that we need is an alliance between different kinds of people and different movements. It is when the Reddit crowd get together with trades unions, get together with climate change uh, activists uh, in order to pursue uh, a vision for the world, that is when we're going to have a revolution. One thing that might be surprising to many is that uh, stimulus spending in the United States was actually much bigger than it was in Europe. If you look at uh, deficit spending by the U.S. government, it was nearly twice as much as Europe, which is very interesting because the EU is more progressive on these issues around housing, around uh, health care, et cetera. When it comes to public spending in general, we would intuitively think that it would be the EU that would spend more. Why is the EU spending so much less in response to COVID in, by comparison? Will you permit me to challenge the, this, uh, this perspective? I would love that. Uh, I think the European Union has always been more conservative when it comes to public spending than the United States. Remember, the Americans uh, have no deficit phobia. No, Richard Nixon, the, on the 15th of August 1971, famously blew up the Bretton Woods system and said, OK, it's our currency, it's your problem. That's what he said to, to, to the Europeans. And they started spending as if there's no tomorrow. And the second phase, globalization, you know, if you want, or financialization, the second post-war phase after the 19, early 1970s, 
was predicated upon the United States becoming you know, a huge vacuum cleaner using its trade deficit to suck into its territory the net exports of Germany, of Holland, of, of Japan, and of course later of China, and creating the world as we know it. So, whereas the European Union, think of what happened after 2008. We had created, come to think of it, just think of this, we had created a central bank without a state or a treasury to have its back, uh, and 19 treasuries or governments without the central bank to have their bank. So when the banks of France, Germany, Greece, Portugal, Ireland collapsed, they didn't do what the British did or what the Americans did, which is to you know, tell the, the central bank, bring the money to save them. No, they transferred wealth from the poorest of the Europeans to the financiers. And the result is we had 12 years of stagnation uh, of austerity that you know, in Europe is just abysmal compared to what the Americans experienced. So yes, even though there is a social democratic, if you want, ethos in Europe during the good times, when capitalism goes through a spasm, America always responds more, in a more Keynesian fashion, if you want. Um, even Ronald Reagan was a Keynesian president compared to anything that we've seen in France or in Germany. Uh, and the result is that every crisis, global crisis, leaves Europe weaker and more injured and wounded compared to the United States than the previous crisis. How much of that response, the Keynesian response that you, that you mentioned, is due to accountability? There are mechanisms, for example, the U.S. Fed is accountable to Congress. It's accountable ultimately to an electorate in a, in a sense, whereas the European Central Bank, which you mentioned, is not. Uh, the EU Commission is not. How much of this is ideological and how much of it is, is about the, the sort of mechanisms and structures of government? The reason why the United States managed to get together is the response of the political system in the United States to previous crises. Firstly, the creation of the Fed in the first decade of the 20th century was due to a financial disaster. And much more importantly, 1929 and Franklin Roosevelt's uh, New Deal, which created in a sense, all those uh, institutions like the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, the you know, Social Security and Medicare, and later with the Great Society of LBJ, that was all strengthened. These are all the institutions that were put in place and which the European Union never had, especially the European Monetary Union. So when 2008 took place, you know, Americans did not need to rely on politicians doing the right thing because those mechanisms were there and automatically absorbed a lot of those shock waves. Uh, whereas in the European Union, we had, you know, a comedy of errors um, that um, uh, produced um, a great deal of uh, inhumanity. If you look at the way my country was treated, if you look at the way that, uh, you know, the German workforce was being treated all those years, condemned to stagnation, uh, because we never had those federal institutions. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about uh, the disproportionate impact that the, that the pandemic will have, at least according to the UN, uh, on women. Uh, women will be pushed into extreme poverty. Uh, for example, there's a woman, Margaret Rahman. She's a single mother of five from South Sudan. She makes a living selling beans at a local market. Uh, since the pandemic, her income has dropped more than 50%. That's just one example of what we're talking about. In the U.S., women lost 156,000 jobs in December. Men gained 16,000 jobs. That means that women accounted for more than 111% of all job losses that month. Uh, 
How would the solutions that you believe in remedy uh, the various forms of gender inequality that we see globally? Well, patriarchy and sexism cannot be solved through Keynesian means. We have to be clear on this. But what we must understand at the same time is that when you have a deep recession, the first people who get hit are women, ethnic minorities, uh, generally the weaker, the young, those who are you know, under 20, uh, the very old. They are the first people. The weaker suffer the most during a recession. So any delay in responding to a spasm of this financialized techno-feudalism that we have by Keynesian means exacerbates the pain that the, uh, the victims of patriarchy uh, have been suffering. So on the one hand, we need to replace the lost incomes. Uh, we are replacing them anyway. You know, the, the central banks are printing a lot of money, but they're giving it to the wrong people. They're not giving it to the women, and they're not giving it to the poor. They're giving it to those who don't need it, to Jeff Bezos of the world, you know, and the corporations of the world that take it to the stock exchange and invest in their own shares again. So we, in a sense, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, who was not a revolutionary and he was not a left winger, um, had the right idea that in order to stabilize capitalism, even from the perspective of a capitalist, you need to look after the weak who are the greatest victims of capitalism's idiocy. I want to think a little bit more about these solutions, right? You say that patriarchy and sexism can't be uh, resolved uh, through Keynesian means. I guess my question is, what kind of interventions can we make that would yield some kind of equality on this front? For example, what would uh, paying women for all domestic labor do as, an, as a possible solution? What do you make of that? Oh, I'm totally against paying women for domestic duties, because that assumes that domestic duties are a woman's job. And as a male of the, as a member of the defective sex, and that is as a man, <laughs> I don't feel I have the right to say that. Uh, I want a basic dividend that is universal and goes to everyone. Uh, but but, but, but I, guess what I, I guess what I mean, though, is if we recognize that a large part of why the domestic sphere is not invested in is because we see it as women's work and as part of a patriarchal vision, could we say that all domestic labor, not just for women, but for everyone, would be compensated as a means of evening out the playing field, as a means of, of providing more economic justice for women around the world, who are often consigned to the domestic sphere? But, you know, a universal basic dividend, let's say a payment of, let's make it modest, you know, $1,000 a month to each individual, you know, would do that without the bureaucracy uh, of having to decide who is a domestic worker and who is not. There would be no uh, punitive state deciding, you know, you are eligible, you are not. And that allows couples, it allows um, households to decide who is going to do their washing up, who is going to stay at home and look after, um, you know, the children, look after the elderly, uh, without the state in interfering in the distribution of these roles. An another issue, in addition to the gender question, is that of race. Uh, the pandemic has revealed structural racism in new ways as well. If you look in Brazil, for example, people of Afro descent are 40 percent more likely to die of COVID than their white counterparts. Uh, in the United States, uh, African-Americans are one and a half uh, times more likely uh, to be infected or die of COVID than their share of the population. Uh, one of the reasons for this, of course, is that we have these economies that are inherently racist and rooted in colonialism and slavery and such. How do the solutions that economists like yourself offer uh, account 
but this kind of structural racism, this kind of deep-seated, historically-rooted inequality? Allow me to reflect for a moment. Uh, I'm one of those privileged white men uh, who has spent the lockdown in isolation in a nice place, and only because there is an army of people out there uh, doing all the work, you know, from garbage men and women to nurses and doctors to supermarket uh, employees to Amazon warehouse workers and so on and so forth, right? Now, the uh, proportion of ethnic minority people doing those jobs is much higher because of the history of exploitation and the history of racism. Any move towards removing the structural privileges of people like me is going to ameliorate the situation that you described, and it will cause um, a more balanced distribution, not just of income, but also of burdens. Let's talk about the IMF for a moment. You, <laughs> I, I see you, you light up a little bit. I know how much you love the IMF. Um, <laughs> you've, you've been obviously very critical of the IMF, uh, the International Monetary Fund. In 2016, you used a phrase that I found very interesting. You accused them of fiscal waterboarding when they imposed strict uh, austerity measures on Greece. Uh, the irony, though, is right now many progressives uh, including some of the largest humanitarian groups, are actually calling on the IMF to disperse a multi-trillion dollar COVID relief package uh, that use funds that don't have to be repaid. Where do you stand on that? Is this a, a measure you'd, you'd support? Absolutely, and I would like to actually strengthen it. Look, the International Monetary Fund is a creature created, born, during the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. The original idea was a splendid one. It would work like something, something like you know, the central bank of the world. And for, for the first 20 years, the IMF did, did not do a, a bad job. I mean, it, it had to handle the fixed exchange rate regime. Things changed when Bretton Woods collapsed, uh, but I, the IMF survived. To survive, it had the, undertook a new role. It played the role of the bailiff of the Wall Street bankers and the bankers of Frankfurt and London and, and Paris, visiting countries, especially in Africa in the late 1970s and later on in Asia and so on, uh, effectively exacting a pound of flesh from the local population on behalf of the international bankers who demanded that their silly investments um, in those countries that were predatory loans, effectively, be repaid to the full through the privatization of things like hospitals and schools and everything else. So the IMF's role was totally transformed. Uh, it went from the side of the good to, you know, uh, to the side where... To the, your, your phrase, the, the incompetent misanthropic troika was, a, was a, an apt... Uh, that is correct. <laughs> quick, quick I'm not, I'm you not about, suggesting though, uh, that the IMF should be um, abolished. What are I and others who are suggesting that a number of SDRs are created in order to fund um, you know, a free vaccine for every human being program, to fund investment in green jobs in the developing world? What we're saying is the IMF should go back to what it was meant to be in 1944. Before you go, I have a question for you about the Green New Deal. It's an idea, a vision at least, for a more uh, just economic future that you've supported both in the EU and in the United States. Uh, why has the left failed uh, to implement such potentially effective policies? 
well, we've never been in power. I mean, here in Greece, we were in power for five months until they came down on us like a ton of bricks and destroyed us, remember? Uh, beyond that, of course, we are leftists. Um, uh, have a, a lot to answer for because we are fantastic at uh, uh, dividing and multiplying and turning against one another. Um, but primarily, allow me to say that so that our viewers do not think that this is simply an ideological matter. It's a question of rationality, if I may say. Never before has humanity had so much money. We have the largest pile of savings and liquidity in the history of humanity. By comparison, the proportion of our savings that we are plowing into investment, investment into the future, right? Into the green transition, green energy, you know, good quality jobs that can produce the, the incomes by which to repay the debts. The amount that we're investing has never been lower as proportion of the total savings in the history of the world. That is stupidity in action. And you don't have to be a left winger or a right winger to agree with that. It's wasted economic energy, and that should be, uh, you know, our guiding light, how to take the money which is there and invest it into the future of humanity, especially, um, you know, the green transition which is necessary so that we can have a planet on which to flourish. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That was former finance minister of Greece and professor of economics at the University of Athens, Yanis Varoufakis, interviewed by Dr. Mark Lamont Hill on Al Jazeera on February 19, 2021. In July 2015, Varoufakis resigned as finance minister in protest over the spending cuts and tax increases demanded by its lenders of Greece as a condition of the country remaining in the Eurozone. Yanis Varoufakis remains engaged in governance issues of the European Union. He's co-founder of the Democracy in Europe movement, DM25. That's a pan-European political movement founded in 2016 by a group of Europeans, including philosophers and activists. They see the European Union becoming a technocratic superstate. Yanis Varoufakis is the author of many books. The most recent are Another Now, Dispatches from an Alternative Present, Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, 2017 and the same year, Adults in the Womb, My Battle with Europe's Deep Establishment. And the weak suffer what they must, Europe's crisis, America's economic future. Varoufakis was in conversation with Dr. Mark Lamont Hill. He's professor of Media, Cities and Solutions at Temple University. His latest book is We Still Hear, Pandemics, Policing, Protest, and Possibility. It follows on the success of the previous book, Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Flint to Ferguson. Professor Hill is host of Upfront on Al Jazeera. 
Al Jazeera English is a television news channel broadcast to the world by the Al Jazeera Media Network. It is the first English-language news channel to be headquartered in the Middle East. Instead of being run centrally, news management rotates between broadcasting centers in Doha and London. The launch date was November 15, 2006. This interview took place on February 19, 2021. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>